When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. He's a convicted con man. We all know that. That is truth. That is fact. But is he also a murderer? That's what we are grappling with at the moment. I don't know what's going on there. I don't have answers. But whatever it is, it's not good. It's, it's dark. Evelyn Reed has never spoken publicly until now. And what she is about to say may change everything. You see, Evelyn is Rick Blum's abandoned daughter. And her memories of her last encounters with him left her fearing for her life and the lives of others. What did he say at that last conversation that was so bad? Well, first off, he was at my house. He wanted to share with me something important that as his daughter, something he could do for me so that I could look after myself better was that he could teach me how to poison people. Evelyn's mother, Ilona, married Rick Blom in Belgium in 1969. She was his third wife. She was just 19. They look so happy and so in love. But the marriage didn't last. And Evelyn grew up completely unaware of his existence until a chance conversation with her stepdad in her teens revealed the startling truth. Evelyn tracked down Blum's phone number and called. The very first conversation was a phone call. There was very short, very sweet. He, he seemed happy to, to hear from me. Then we met near the Novotel in Melbourne, went, went to some restaurant for dinner, and that's where he proceeded to tell me that he was a, a coin dealer, an international traveller dealing in coins. He had a briefcase with him that was full of cash. He just got back from a big trip overseas where he'd sold lots of coins, 
That's um, what he told you? Yeah. I said to him, how come you never came and looked for me? And he said, I didn't know anything about you. I didn't even know your mother was dead until now that you've told me. I didn't question it further. You wanted to believe it? Yeah. Do you believe it now? Oh, no. I <laughs> know, oh, I know. I absolutely just am still struggling to come to terms with how much he lies. Whether the stories he told her were lies or the truth is something Evelyn still grapples with. But on the next point, her memory is rock solid. It's a conversation held not long after their first meeting, where Blum, who's been linked to a criminal gang in Belgium, accused of 28 unsolved murders, began boasting of his tough guy connections. He was bragging to me about when he was younger that um, he and um, some of his, you know, mates, what they used to like to do, bury people alive with hungry cats and, you know, that this is, this is a style of seeking revenge. He was, a, he was a scary character. It was during this same conversation that he told his long-lost daughter he could show her the art of killing people without leaving a trace. The least I can do for you is to teach you how to take care of yourself. You should know how to poison people. And he went through a um, very descriptive method and then finished by saying that if I ever needed to use that method on anybody, that they would develop flu-like symptoms within a couple of weeks um, through poisoning food. They would develop flu-like symptoms within a couple of weeks and then uh, within a week or two they'd be dead and it would be untraceable. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I am hugely honoured to be rejoined by my very special guest because we have so much more still to talk about. Please reintro yourself again, Joni, although I feel now you this is it. It's Laura and Joni on Crime Analyst. Yes, yes, yes. Joni Condos here from good old Australia, here joining again. I feel as though this is pretty much my second lounge room now, but... <laughs> It is. It's great well, to join you again, Laura. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And the feedback and people's comments just from the first episode with you have just been incredible. So many people just saying, wow, what a, a font of knowledge you are on this case, Joni, and what incredible investigative and sleuther skills you have, which I 100% agree with. And it's so nice to see that feedback coming in. Thank you. Yes, it's been very humbling for me and very eye-opening because a lot of the stuff that I've done over the past four years has been solo and pretty much in a dark room by myself. <laughs> so yes, it's been very good to be able to have my voice and to be able to speak on my own. 
Absolutely. And you know what? When I was at New Scotland Yard, that was me. I was always in the back room, in the intel cell, doing all the stuff in the shadows, as it were. And my boss kept saying to me, you should do more media work. And the few that you've done, you've done a great job and you should be out more doing things. And I always said, no, 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 I'm okay doing what I'm doing because that's what interested me, joining the dots and the investigative analysis and the behavioral analysis. And so I recognize that with you, that you have very much been in the background, but you've been such a key part of finding really important information in this case. And I really wanted to bring you into the foreground and amplify your voice because you really do know so much about this case. And I know my listeners, they had, even with our first episode, so many questions. And when I was talking to Sally, they had so many questions. So given that you brought me in to the case, I really wanted you to find your voice and to share your knowledge with others, because I know how important this case is to you. You've invested so much time and you really do want to resolve it for Sally. Yes, definitely. It's definitely been a very surprising and unexpected journey, I suppose, you know, from 2019 to now. And I must also say that there have been plenty of others involved too. So I I do need to give credit to the huge mountain of people that have given very, very crucial pieces of information, done crucial research themselves, thought outside the box, followed it really closely, been a cheer squad for Sally and provided a huge amount of support in this journey. So it really has been, it also has been, yes, very much a community of people from very, very vast backgrounds, parts of the world coming together to genuinely support getting some kind of resolution in this case. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I echo you on that. You're so gracious, Joni, and I do echo you. There have been so many phenomenal people supporting Sally and finding out critical pieces of information. And it really has sort of been a crowdfunded investigation from people all over the globe. So I too just want to recognise everybody who's played a part, including the fantastic and incredible women, the survivors, those who unfortunately met with Mr. Rick Bloom at various times in their life and gave up a lot actually to give evidence, including their sleep, because many of them testified or a number of them in their 90s testifying in the middle of the night. So it really has been a lot of people lending their voice and and supporting Sally. And I think this is the good part of true crime and real crime that for me is what good podcasting is all about, of joining our voices, joining our knowledge, supporting Sally and her family and joining our resources where the police have failed to try and find out answers. And this is everything for me that's just incredible about good true crime, real crime, I call it real crime podcasting. Yes, most definitely. And I hope one day maybe that the European women, as we call them, the women in Europe, will also have a chance to have a bit of a voice as well and to talk about their journeys because they are quite different. But of course, as we've spoken about, there are patterns (laughs) there. And it would be really great if they could also come forward because we found that as we've spoken to them, even post the inquest, more and more information has been coming out and all the subtleties are being picked up as well. And they're actually almost remembering things that they hadn't thought about for a long time. And that's also been super helpful too, to see those patterns emerging. 
Yeah, maybe they hadn't thought about those things. You compartmentalize over time, but also you don't know always the significance of the piece of information or knowledge that you have. And I think that's where the lady vanishes and putting this together and getting it out there and amplifying it to the world, because this is a global case. I keep saying it because too often borders become a problem and people, men like Mr. Rick Bloom, exploit that. So this is a global case and it really does need as many eardrums on it as possible, which is why I'm very happy to talk about the case more on Crime Analyst. And we are doing a marathon here, aren't we, Joni? It's a, a marathon of separate recording sessions to really unearth key information that actually a lot of people who've listened to The Lady Vanishes, they've said in our discussions that they've learned new things. And, and that's the point of why we're doing what we're doing. Yes, definitely. The Lady Vanishes has done an absolutely brilliant job in getting this case out there. 2019, they started. At that stage, it was very much unknown whether Marion was still alive, whether she was deceased, what had actually happened. And so they did take a huge risk, really, in picking up this story. And then I guess to now, there's been so much information that's come forward like a veritable tsunami. So I think it's good that we're able to deep dive even further down into the detail of the case. So yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a pleasure to have you here with me again. And yeah, shout out to The Lady Vanishes. If you haven't listened to it, please do. There's 90 odd episodes there that you can binge. And a lot of my listeners are saying I'm on, you know, halfway through and this is just what an incredible journey. So it, it's great that people listen to both. And of course, as you've been unearthing things, more information and people have come to light. And some of them have challenged the narrative. Some of them have said, well, actually, that's not true. And I'm thinking in particular with reference to Mr. Rick Bloom, where we've heard from many different women about what he told them in terms of his family history. And now you know so much more and the timeline work that you've done is extensive. And I said in the last episode that that's what we would dig into in this episode. So how about we start with his family history and what you discovered which was very different to the stories that have been told and even amplified on the podcast and, and on Spotlight. That was interesting because what happened was I was looking for Jean-Pierre Coppenol, which is Rick Bloom's cousin. Rick Bloom gave an account as part of his, you know, what he was doing over in Europe and the UK when Marion travelling. So in that 1997 period that he actually saw his cousin and his cousin gave him money for his trip, for his five to six week trip down in France. And so I was searching for Jean-Pierre Coppenol to speak to him about this so-called 1997 trip. And I happened upon another Jean-Pierre Coppenol, who is not Jean-Pierre Coppenol, Frederick or Rick Bloom's cousin. Now, it turns out that Jean-Pierre Coppenol is distantly related to Rick Bloom's cousin. And his son did an extensive family history of the Coppenols of Tournay in Belgium during the COVID lockdown. 
So his son did an absolutely amazing job of collecting up all sorts of information. Um, He was able to actually go into the archives and collect original documents, so marriage certificates, births, deaths. He went to cemeteries. He visited family. He got accounts. It was just an amazing project. And he very kindly sent me that whole project. So I got access to all of that. And that also included his notes. And within those notes, it was detailed that what did occur in 1942 was that the house where Blum was living with his two brothers and his mother, his father had just passed away, and the bombs did fall on their home. His mother did lose one leg. So it wasn't two, it was one leg. And then she actually went and moved in with her parents. So she moved in with her parents with her three children. So that is Willie, Freddie and Desiree. And they lived there with the parents and they also lived with Maria's sister as well. So there was a bit of a sharing around that went on with Maria and she was pregnant with Desiree at the time. So she had the three children, one one in her tummy. So Rick stated that he was adopted. And then when Maria married her second husband, Abel Florent Wooters, he then was able to get out of the orphanage and then he was adopted by Abel, but, or Andre as he's called, but that wasn't actually the case at all. So Rick was never in a home. Rick was never given away. He was always lived with the family and His mother, I feel, did a very good job in being pregnant, losing a leg, losing a husband, and with family support, did manage to raise all three children. That for me was interesting. Like, why would Mr. Rick Bloom be putting that narrative forward that he was given away or adopted? Is that to denigrate his mother? Or what's the actual reason for this? And I I wonder what your view was on that yourself. What is your view on that? Why would he do that? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because most of the women that came into contact with him reported that he had told them that he was a Holocaust survivor. He escaped the gas chamber. He had been abandoned. His parents died in a concentration camp or that he was put up to be adopted in Australia. All these different narratives, but all about him being abandoned and on his own and what a sad little boy he must have been. Or equally, how heroic that he survived as a Holocaust survivor and therefore he's an incredible person because of that. And I think the stories that he tells, well, they're fabricated for one, but I believe the intention is to get that empathy. And Kate Mann always talks about empathy, where we're much more empathetic towards men when they tell a story about something that happened in childhood or something terrible that happened to them. And we're, oh, you know, it's a bit of a pity party. And we're not as sympathetic or empathetic towards women when they may tell the same stories. And I see that double standard a lot. Now, my belief, knowing what I know about his life course, and of course, there's much more to learn about him, is that that was the intention to manipulate and to create a situation where someone feels, particularly women, that they want to take him under their care, that they feel very empathetic towards him, that they want to help him. 
and take him in under their arm, whether that means taking them in for him to live with them for a period of time or whatever it it might be. It means that he's seen in a much more favourable light and as a survivor. And so therefore it changes the narrative. I'm curious about his mum because it does sound to me, Joni, like she did an incredible job against huge adversity of not just losing her husband to peritonitis, I believe it was, but then the bomb landing on their on their home and she loses a leg, but she still doesn't give up her children. That tells me about mental fortitude from her. And in a sense, I really don't like that he was throwing shade on on his family so that he came out looking better when actually it sounds to me like it took a village and Maria's sister and others all pitched in to try and ensure that Maria was helped and that the children stayed within the family unit. That certainly is what it appears to me. What happens after that is that Maria then does marry Abel Florent Wooters, and he, Abel was only just around 10 years older than Willie Wooters, as he was known at the time, or Rick Bloom. So he was quite a younger man for uh, Maria Coppenol to marry. And he was in the army. So they then moved up just near the border of Belgium and Germany. And so that was where Willie Wooters started to get in trouble. So that was around the age of 14 or 15 years. So he was doing things like stealing copper pipe off building sites, breaking into primary schools and taking supplies, notebooks and pens and stuff like that, just with a group of other kids. And he was actually shot at by the police in one of those incidents. And that's actually detailed in the local newspaper at the time. So Rick Blum was doing things like that from a very young age, which I find interesting too, as was his brother, Freddie, too. So Freddie was also in the paper for, and we know it's him because of the date of birth that was given in the newspaper articles for both children. So Freddie was also doing stuff like that too. And that that's interesting too, because when Freddie died, in 1989, he was basically left with so much debt that nobody wanted to take on his estate. So again, apparently he was a real gambler and that he lost a lot of money on the horses over that time and also with business interests that sort of went a bit sour. So again, what is it about these two brothers that both of them have got that kind of drive to do things in perhaps not such a law-abiding way. Yeah, that's interesting to me as well. Absolutely. I mean, la folie deux sometimes plays in that when you have one who is doing things that are criminal or antisocial, then you can have the other and they can encourage each other. Now, I don't know whether that was the case here, but that may well have been at play. And I do think it's very curious that his mum, Maria, and, well, the husband, who was Willie Wooters's Rick Bloom's stepdad and Freddie, all died suddenly and unexpectedly within 12 months of each other. That's very curious to me. You know, Freddie was 48 at the time, and it was believed that he was in a car, that it could have been a heart attack or an aneurysm. But there was a question mark about what exactly was it that he died from. And at 48, it's quite young. Now, for me, having one person die suddenly and unexpectedly around you, I would ask questions. But when you have 
two or three in the same family. You know, I'm very curious about that because Rick Bloom seems to, there's a pattern in the rear view mirror of people in his life dying suddenly and unexpectedly, but also disappearing. Yes, it is interesting. Also, just his, I guess, if we want to talk about the the various marriages that he's had over the years too and go through them, because we have managed to speak with his first wife. His second wife remains unknown at this stage, but we will get there. And his third wife is, of course, was featured in the Seven Spotlight episode. So there is some more known about known about her. She did pass away unexpectedly too. The third wife, Ilona. I'm curious about that. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Now, you mentioned the first wife, Janine, who he married in 1960 to 62. And and just to say, so that people understand this context, he actually had three wives in 10 years, which for me is very curious that somebody marries multiple times in a short space of time And the first wife, Janine, he was with for two years. He had two children with her, didn't he? Yes, he had two children. We have spoken extensively to his first child, who did reach out to us. That relationship, there was nothing of any concern. When he did leave that relationship, she was left with a debt for a motorbike. But other than that, it wasn't a relationship that was filled with any kind of concern, violence, emotional manipulation or anything of that nature. That's the recollection of his first wife. Well, nothing, I'm just going to interject and just say nothing that was disclosed because as you and I both know, Joni. That's correct, yes. When people think about abuse, most think about abuse being physical, And women of a certain age think that when you were married, it was your job to be the homemaker and to look after the man and make sure his needs are are taken care of. And oftentimes that imbalance, that power imbalance was just seen as a very normal thing. Now, in 1961, so after the first year of marriage, he, Willie Wooters, fell off his horse in a training exercise in the forest. So this is when he was a gendarme. And that's when he has an injury doesn't he? He's dragged 300 metres and he has a head and leg injuries. Now He blames this accident on the horse. Interesting when people always blame someone else or something else, not their own lack of skills in what they're doing, but that's what he says. And he was dragged for quite a, a distance. And that injury meant that he was discharged from the gendarme on disability Now, I wonder how much of his energy was taken up with that 
versus paying attention to the relationship. And I, I don't know the quality of the relationship. I'm not going to make assumptions other than just to say that it was a very short relationship and what she might understand as abuse, my understanding normally is quite different and it takes some time to tease things out of people, doesn't it? Um, but maybe equally he was just very engrossed in what was happening to him rather than anything else. Certainly the comment was made by her that he very much changed after he did have that accident. So that accident, she confirmed that accident did happen. It was a training accident. He was in the Mounted Brigade. She did confirm all of that. And interestingly enough, his grandfather was also quite famously in the Mounted Brigade as well within his life. So it looks as though Rick Blum has, has almost, you know, looked to his grandfather and taken on and done the same role. But yes, there is certainly a communication by her that he did change very much after that accident, short-tempered, easily sort of angered and, yeah, just quite a different personality. That was what she had said. Is that why they separated, did she say? No, she just said that he decided to leave her. So after he had the accident and when he'd come out of hospital, he decided that relationship wasn't for him and he did leave her. It's also worth mentioning, and I say this with a bit of a smile on my face, he said in evidence within the horse accident that it was because there was a mare in front and that he was on a stallion and, and the two stallions were fighting over the mare. And so that is why the mare reared up and dragged him along the ground because it was the stallion's fault for going for the mare. Now, we all know that stallions are not horses used within police forces, even in Belgium. Um, we've been able to determine that. So that is certainly a fabricated story, scaldings that are used. So what is that all about? I just find that amusing and interesting at the same time. Well, I, I think with him, there always has to be something that's much more fantastical than just the, the truth. And the poor me syndrome from it all, you know, it's always something else or someone else. And he comes off in a way that he just wants to garner as much PMS as possible. But once you start to dig into his stories, you realise that they're just that. It's just a fantastical tale Although I do think it's interesting about the personality change post that accident and also that he remains he remains on his um on his pension doesn't he that he was discharged from the gendarmerie on disability but he remained on the Belgian pension and right up until now present day That's right he was in receipt of a Belgian pension and then also from 1986, so as you know, five weeks after he landed back into Australia, he went to see a doctor that was in the media was said to be quite dubious, <laughs> this doctor um, in inner northern New South Wales whose specialty was actually looking at Vietnam veterans and PTSD associated with being in the Vietnam War. And so he did assess him as having PTSD-related injury and he was therefore allocated a Centrelink pension here in Australia too. 
So, yes, so from 1986, we have a Belgian pension, we have a Centrelink Australian pension, and then we have Mrs. De Hedeveri on a carer's pension as well for all of that time. So that is where it's at. And she's on a carer's pension for him, Mrs. De Hedeveri. That's correct, yes. And has been since 1986. Yes, so nearly 40 years, 37 years. I mean, I'm curious about that part because surely he would have to be in the country being cared for for her to be able to draw that pension down. And we know that he's travelled extensively across many years. So that doesn't sound right to me that that pension's being drawn down when he's been off gallivanting all over the place and targeting other women, cheating on her whilst he's doing it. But surely he would would have to be in the country with her for that to be appropriate. Yes. I mean, you do have to wonder, especially when, say, at times he was away. He was away for literally months at a time. It is curious. Yes, gaming the system. We'll come back to Diane. So 1964 to 1966, he's with another wife, Nicole Renoir. Now you say she's unknown. And I asked the question, is she missing? I mean, she hasn't been located. Do you think that she's missing or that she's disappeared herself or something else may have happened? We do have her full name um, and we do have that they were divorced in 1969. So we assume that Nicole was still very much alive and well in 1969 when that divorce did occur, but we don't know at this stage. So working with Belgian journalists at the moment and Luxembourg journalists to try to get that nailed down because that is one thing that I really want to ensure. I've written to the coroner actually a few times just to ask, can that please be looked into and confirmed? I mean, it's a fairly common name over there. So I've done as much as I possibly can. I've contacted as many Nicole Renaults as I can possibly find, um, looked up family history, created trees, created mirror trees. But in Belgium, it's actually a lot more difficult to get information compared to here. So hopefully when Sally and I go across to Europe in the next 18 months or so, I'll be able to actually attend some of those commune offices and just locate her and, yeah, find out and make ensure, I suppose, what her life sort of history and, you know, is she still alive today? So, yeah, it's a very big question mark still. Yes, it is for me. I don't like to make assumptions on anything because they make an ass out of you and me. That's what I was always taught when I was training to be an intelligence analyst. And, you know, I just don't know whether it's possible to be divorced if that person isn't present or isn't a signature. But what if it is just a signature and he's fraudulently done so many other things? So that's one of the questions that I've always had when people say, well, Marion, her going missing, he hasn't done anything like that before. And I always said, well, how do we know? How do we know that? Because until you timeline someone properly and you look in their rear view mirror, you don't see the people like his mother and stepfather and brother just suddenly and unexpectedly dying and his second wife who seems to have disappeared and his third wife 
who just suddenly and unexpectedly dies while driving a car. And then her mother and her brother, Attila, they die within a very short period of time and close together. You know, these are all big question marks, aren't they, Joni? They're so important to bottom out. And I'm glad that you and Sally are are taking that trip and will hopefully be able to find out more. Yes, we're very determined. When I spoke to Michael John Reed, who is Ilona's second husband... So they met on a cruise ship coming out of Nadi and he actually said that Ilona told him that when she was living with Willie Wooters, as he was known back then in Lille, so he came on the cruise ship with Diane to Australia, he left again under his brother's identity, he was then living in an apartment in Lille in France, northern France, right near the border, Tournay's just literally across the border there, and apparently a woman came knocking on the door one day and Ilona answered the door. This is what Ilona told Michael John Reed and that a woman, she had a couple of small children with her. She said, I am still married to your husband, Willie Wooters, and I want to know where he is and what he's doing. Like I want to see him and I want to find it, work out what is going on here. So there was an assumption by Michael John Reed that that was in fact Nicole. But at this stage, yeah, we don't know. It is a very big gap within the timeline that we really need to fill for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, Willie Wooters marries Ilona Kinzel in Brussels on the 10th of May, 1969. So if you're saying that on the 10th of February, Willie Wooters divorced Nicole in Brussels, that's a very short period of time to then be marrying another woman, isn't it? Yes, especially if you look at Ilona's immigration records too, because I was able to gain access to them. And within there, she actually was meant to leave twice prior to actually leaving. So it's almost as though there is something actually stopping her from leaving the country twice before she actually leaves in the May. So her friend sailed out on a ship and she ended up flying. So there's just some question marks for me around that, whether they were waiting for a set period of time before they married once that divorce occurred, whether they were waiting for paperwork, like I don't know, but it's a very, very short amount of time. And especially considering that when Willie Wooters, aka Rick Blum, landed in Australia, he ticked single, that he was single and he was just simply a tourist who was visiting for three months. That was supposedly what he was doing. But then like 72 hours later, he's walking into immigration department in Sydney. He flew into Perth and he's applying for residency and he's married. Wow. Mm. So there was definitely a plan afoot from day dot, in my opinion. Came in single and it just turns out that two weeks prior to him even leaving, there's an article in the local newspaper in Tournay that he had just been convicted of crimes. So how is it that he's able to leave Belgium and enter Australia underneath that name, Willie Wooters, knowing that the police court in Tournay had just charged him and he was convicted of a number of offences? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And we know, well, we come back to citizenship and just what's gone on with immigration because it is it's quite a web that this bloke has spun 
And some things are easily traceable, other things are more difficult to uncover. I think it is worth mentioning that Ilona was 19 and he was 30. So it seems to me that most of the women that he targeted in terms of those he married were 19, that they were much younger than him. And Yes, they were. So we know that that means that they were malleable, they were much more impressionable, there was a power imbalance between them. And I think that that's significant too, that there's a plan on his behalf and how he meets these younger women. And then there appears to be more of a strategy from him. And I think that with Diane Walker as well, well, we'll come on to Diane, but she was 19 too, and they met on a ship. And it took some time before they were married, but literally within days, he applied for citizenship. And I think that that's a very important timeline, just seeing what he's doing in terms of immigration, his criminal offending. And that's where it becomes a bit more complex. Now, the Alona part of this, his third wife that we've been talking about, who he married in 1969, the fact that she died suddenly and unexpectedly. I mean, this is a very curious part of where the lady vanishes took quite a different turn of discovering that she died at 31. She had been in a car herself, it was believed by her children that she had some sort of heart problem because Michael Reed had said that she had apparently told him she had had scarlet fever as a child and therefore it was believed that her heart was weak. And that was sort of the story that had been handed down. Now, that's a, a very strange story in, in my view, particularly as that's not what was revealed on, on the post-mortem, but that's what they were told nonetheless. She did have flu-like symptoms before this happened, like a week before, and she'd gone to the doctor. And apparently Michael Reed said that he had been told by her that she had vaginal bleeding. And he had said to her to go to the doctor. He had kissed her goodbye that day. And he said that her lips were very cold and that he'd even commented, that's the kiss of death, which I found very bizarre. And then... Yeah, She dies suddenly and unexpectedly in a car, which again, I'm just thinking about Freddie who died at age 48, suddenly and unexpectedly in a car. It wasn't discovered what he actually died from, the cause of death and the manner of death. And again, with Ilona, it seems to be the same story repeating. What are your thoughts on that, Joni? I find it very interesting. So if I can almost wind back right to the start of that whole thing and, and I guess how that all transpired, Sally and I did look and we we saw this wife and then we saw on Ancestry that she had settled in Australia, she'd settled in Melbourne. So we were quite interested in that. Then we saw that, yeah, she had passed away in 1977. So I live in Victoria. So I went down to the local Victorian State Archives and I managed to obtain her body card, which sounds such a horrible name, but it's basically all her whole file. And that included her belongings and everything from the hospital. So because she didn't have a coronial inquest, she did have an autopsy. So I was able to gain access to all of that information. And when I read that, I thought, what is this all about? And I was actually quite shocked when I read, had a gruel-like material in her stomach, the car hadn't crashed, it was just sitting on the side of the road. Yeah, as you said, she had been to the doctor just before 
Then I went to the cemetery in Springvale and got their records. And in there, she was buried in a community cemetery and there was no records there. So what I did was I found a woman who was running as the president. She was running that community cemetery and she had actually stopped so that was taken over by the larger conglomerate, the Springvale Cemetery. So I thought, well, she doesn't have any records. And it turns out that she had a whole lot of records in her barn or her shed in Horsham in northern Victoria. So she said, you know, I could hear her full drive humming along as I'm speaking to her. And she said, don't worry, love, I'll get home and I'll haul out those boxes and I'll find all the records for you, love. Don't worry about that. And she did. So she literally hauled all these boxes out of her of her old barn underneath all the hay, I suppose, and she found all the records. And the curious thing, Elona's name was misspelt. So her first and second name were misspelt within those cemetery records. So therefore, that's why she couldn't actually be located if you were to ring the Springvale Cemetery because until those records were corrected, she was actually buried under the wrong name, under a different name. So I find that also very curious. Could it be an error, you know, etc.? Yes. So look, the whole situation is very much unknown. I don't discount that Mr. Rick Bloom, was he in the country? Was he not in the country? He was supposedly out of the country. But then we have years of periods of time throughout his whole history where he's meant to be. So he was, for example, with his driver's license in 1984, he was meant to be out of the country, but there is a receipt there for his driver's license in Sydney. So, but there's no travel movements to indicate he was here or he wasn't here. So, I guess for me, I just don't have the clarity around that situation, what actually occurred, because the family's so fractured as well. It's very hard to know what the situation is. There's no clarity around the family setup, the inheritances who got what. It would be so good if all of that could be clarified, not only for this case, but also just for Ilona's children as well. To be able to put those things to bed would be, I think, very beneficial for them too. Absolutely. Yes. So that was a long answer to a simple question. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very detailed answer and I really value that. The fact that her name was misspelled I can't help but think that that was intentional. I mean, if you're going to get someone's name wrong when they, when they die, well, that just shows even, let's say it was, it was accidental. Well, it shows just a lack of care and the fact that she didn't have a headstone. That was the thing when I first heard what had happened that stood out to me. No headstone for a mum. What is going on? We're not talking about centuries ago, why would she not have a headstone? And by the way, I still don't accept Michael Reed's explanation for that. I believe that it shows how disposable women are and how men, certain men can just move on, like just grabbing branches like monkeys do, going from one branch to the other with no due care. There were two children here who didn't attend their mother's funeral, who knew nothing about what had happened, who were made wards of court 
which I was horrified to hear that. And I was horrified, and I'm just going to say it as I see it, I'm always very direct. The fact that they were made ward of courts, and Michael Reed said that he didn't know if they were wards of court or not, and that the nuns had said to him, no, you go and live your life. And it was the nuns telling him that. I just don't buy that whole account. I'm sorry, what a terrible decision to take. And the fact that Ilona had no actual headstone and the children couldn't even go to a place to say goodbye to their mother, that is horrible. But then to find out these aspects to how she died being so peculiar and unexplained and this story that's being created, I'm highly suspicious of it all, Joni. And the fact that Rick Bloom is also involved, even more suspicious of it, and feel very uncomfortable about the fact that Ilona died in in such a way when there was a history of things health-wise going on. But Mr. Rick Bloom also having met up with Evelyn, his daughter, talked talking to her about poisons and substances that you can put into someone's food or drink and it be untraceable and them not to die for a period of time and it not to be detected or the possibility of it being detected. I just find all of that very curious and and very unsettling. And goodness knows how it feels for Evelyn and, and her brother. When you join these dots together, it becomes far more sinister. I was actually quite surprised that this wasn't aired within the coronial inquest itself. So it does seem as though this particular aspect or reports have been well and truly kept away from the proceedings, which, yes, I guess I just wonder about that too, especially when you do have Ghislaine as well and um, Ghislaine's daughter-in-law telling about the book of poisons and that he allegedly quite coveted that book and was sitting over in the corner reading it intently and also within his alibi going to the Museum of Medical History in Rouen as part of his alibi as well for his 1997 trip, which is full of old medical stuff and depictions of childbirth. There's a poison room in there as well, where you can see all of the old bottles and what was used. And it's quite macabre. It's quite a macabre place to go. So those things, I think it certainly is a very interesting aspect to the case too. It is not unexpected because, like I said with Rick Bloom, if you look in the rearview mirror, there seems to be a trail of death and destruction, but also of gaslighting and inventing, reinventing himself and piecing all of that together. And I do think it was interesting, or I did think it was interesting listening to Evelyn and her interview saying that when she met with Rick Bloom, she felt unsafe. And unsafe because the conversation between them was not your average father-daughter being reunited conversation. And him talking about poisons and talking about violence and talking about if anybody harms you, this is how you can protect yourself. He couched it in that way. That is just not a normal thing to say. And then her receiving the champagne bottle and having an instinct that something wasn't quite right, that... He wanted her to drink it and she kept it and preserved it. 
But intuitively, she felt that it had been tampered with and that there was poison in there. And he gives her that bottle and then he just vanishes. And the phone is disconnected and he just disappears, which is what every woman, every testimony that they've given about meeting him. And then there's been the gaslighting and the manipulation and the conning. And then he either gets away with half of it or part of it or none of it but he vanishes and he just disappears out of their life. And that, to me, again, when we look at the behaviour, you map it across, it's a similar pattern. It is. And especially considering, too, that he literally disappears. So from an address, his address changes. All of the women that have come forward thus far, within weeks of that occurring, he has an address change. So with Marion, too, so in late October, he had an address change and he moved from the house in, in Wollongbar and he moved into a very small unit in East Ballina. And then after Jeanette Gaffney-Bowen, we have an address change where he's moving from one unit to another unit in the same villa block of units, this time to the rear of the block of units with the sea view, with the path going down to the beach, very different to to the first property. So again, after every woman, we literally have a physical address change. And that could be his family at times stayed in the location. So they didn't always move, but he would then stay in student accommodation and put his address as that, as a student accommodation block or whatever. Yeah, he was always, always moving. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And that sounds to me like he's trying to create distance. The name changes, creating distance, the vanishing with Evelyn, just like he did with Monique, Jeanette, Ghislaine, Andre, Charlotte, that pattern. Only with Marion... It's Marion that disappeared. He did too, but Marion has never been discovered. And so that's the big question mark. And I do wonder with Evelyn, had she have drunk that champagne? I mean, thank goodness she didn't, but she took it to the police. They weren't interested and maybe she dodged a bullet there. We won't know, but my heart really goes out to her and to her brother. I mean, she was seven year years old when her mother died and effectively she then lost not just her mother, but her whole life change. She was made a ward of the state. It sounds to me like she suffered a lot of trauma, trauma upon trauma and abuse. And what I also found, and I, I'm just going to 
past comment on Michael Reed's callous disregard, he didn't find any words of comfort to these two children who he said that he cared for. There was no care, there was no compassion, there was no acknowledgement of the trauma that they had suffered. And I found that really difficult to listen to. That There were questions that I had about him and just his callous disregard, but just how disposable women are. And it just makes me angry. It makes me angry that women can just be disposed of in a in a grave with no headstone when they leave behind their children and their name is incorrect and therefore very hard to track down. And the same with Marion, the lack of care and the lack of compassion from officials as well to want to do anything. And it, it just strikes me that's a pattern, not just the cases that I work, but the more the lady vanishes and the work that you've been doing, just uncovering all these anomalies, are they connected or are they not? But what it tells me about is how women are just disregarded and thrown away with such disregard and such contempt. And that to me is just not okay. Okay, so I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. I think you're starting to understand more of the profile of Rick Bloom. His daughter, Evelyn's account is chilling and I have much more to share with you. And you can probably tell how angry I am about the fact that so many women have been treated so appallingly. It's not just a wild coincidence that each woman reported they did the right thing and then nothing happened. The message to women is, it's no big deal. What he did is of no consequence, it doesn't matter. And the message to Rick Bloom is, just carry on. And his behaviour is greenlit and greenlit and greenlit. This is exactly, in my professional experience, how I've seen the system and those in it support the abusers, and they collude with them when this happens. Rick Bloom's third wife, a mother of two, Ilona, died suddenly and unexpectedly, and her two children, and you heard from Evelyn, they lost everyone and everything that they knew. Their small worlds were turned upside down, and Michael Reed gave them away. They were made wards of court, and their mother was buried in an unmarked grave, no questions asked, and her name wasn't even correct, so even if they wanted to find her, they wouldn't be able to. Thank goodness for Joni, but I have to say I find this really hard to square. For Ilona and for her children. Then when Marion goes missing, Sally, her daughter, reported her missing to the police, and again... She's dismissed and nothing happens. It's so egregious to me. It's a consistent pattern that women are treated so poorly and it's why I always say, women have to matter more. Women are not disposable. We matter. In this case and many others, too much value is attached to what a non-credible, manipulative, dangerous and entitled bloke says without question. Check and corroborate everything. Get your receipts. If in doubt, it's a hell no. Never take someone at their word alone. Check to see if their actions and words are in alignment. Are they congruent? Just because someone says something with confidence and bravado, that does not make it true. You will know my mantra by now. Be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Particularly if they're a bloke. Because men... Well, men cannot be trusted. 
Remember, 90% of sex offenders are men. 93% of murderers are men. 93% of domestic abusers are men. And 70% of stalkers are men. We all know victims of abuse, but I bet you can't think of one perpetrator that you know. Just think about that. So a few words of advice that I can offer on top of what I've already said. Don't just implicitly trust a man or a professional or what they tell you. And don't just give your power away, ever. Remember, trust and confidence takes time to build, as does intimacy. And financial independence equals freedom. Pass that on to your daughters and all the women that you know. I've really had enough of the whole be kind, be grateful mantras aimed at girls and women. We have been. And in fact, far too often we're too trusting and too polite, too compliant, too malleable, and it's time to take our power back. Take no shit. Perhaps I'll be adding that to my sign-off. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, trust your instincts, and take no shit. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.